Romans 8 will be in verses 31 through 39. Been in a series in Romans, and let me tell you, Romans 8 just can't get enough. So much good news. It begins with good news. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it begins with good news. We hear more good news in verse 15. We're adopted into the forever family. And then we hear about the Spirit interceding for us in verse 26. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. We hear even more good news. Romans 8, 28, this was last week, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, are you ready for more good news? Where we're headed is verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We're headed there, and I'm going to show you how we get there and how we can have joy no matter what we face in this life and encouragement here through the love of Christ. So let's look together. Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen to that. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, as I preach this passage, I pray that you would help me. May your spirit rest on each one here, have just the right message for each one, and we pray we would once again come into contact with this wondrous love that you have for sinners like us, that we might live our entire life for you and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. A lot can be said about positive thinking, positive thinking, being being optimistic. And I think a lot of that ended in 9-11. In 9-11, 20 years ago, we came into full contact with evil. And in the face of that evil, this kind of thinking positive thoughts that really aren't based on anything, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold up to 
national-type evil and tragedies. Positive thinking just isn't enough. And then someone figured out, okay, positive thinking isn't cutting it. Let's move to sort of some reheated, rebaked, New Age uh, beliefs called the law of attraction. And the law of attraction, I don't know if you've had contact with it, but it's this idea that if you just think good thoughts, it will somehow, the universe will benevolently look at you and give you what you want. Yeah, that doesn't work either. And I want to tell you this morning that the Bible is so, has so much more for us than just some optimism, positive thinking. The Bible has so much more. In fact, verse 37, the Bible tells us here that if you're in Christ, you are more than a conqueror. Total victory. Total victory. You may say, ah, I just, I'm not feeling that this morning. More than a conqueror. If you're in Christ, what, what is that based on? How do, we, how do we get there? How do we get there? And there's an outline in your bulletin there. You can follow along with me. We're headed to more than conquerors, but how do we get there? Can you show it to me? Absolutely. First point here. Verse 31, God is for us. God is for us. Look at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? What are the these things? That these things include Romans 8.18, if you look up in the passage, the sufferings that we encounter in, these, in this life. The sufferings that we encounter are part of the context for Paul stating that God is for us. And so the, these things are the sufferings that we encounter. They are also the blessings and the good news that we see. In Romans 8. So both are taken into account here, and especially in verses 29 and 30, where you see an unbroken redemptive activity of God. Nothing can stop the redemptive activity of God. That is one of the, these things. So, in light of all this, the good news, the blessings, God's unstoppable redemptive activity you see there in verses 29 and 30, and taking into account the hardships and sufferings that we encounter, what's the conclusion? What's the conclusion? Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. God is for us. Now, the us, that refers to Christians. It refers to Christians only, and that's the good news for us, that if you're in Christ, if you place your faith in Christ, if you've turned over your life to Him, then it is true that God is for you. God is for the Christian. If that's not true of your life yet, God is not for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. And we don't. We struggle with that, I think. Sometimes we don't think, especially if you're kind of a perfectionist or you think it's all up to you or you think that God loves you according to your spiritual performance and God is up in heaven with a celestial clipboard and he's examining our life and sort of checking the boxes or in my case, not checking them. And 
what do we say? No, that's, that's not a correct theology. If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, if the God of the universe, the sovereign God who created all things is for us, it doesn't matter who's against you. Anyone can be against you in this world, but that is not the final statement because God is for us. God is for us. And you might say, oh, that sounds great. That sounds great to have this God that is for us, that my life is hidden in Christ, that I am united to Christ by virtue of my faith. Christ's destiny is my destiny. I'm one with him, united to him. That sounds great. That God is for us, prove it to me. Prove it to me. It sounds too good to be true. Look at verse 32. It's right there. That's all the proof that we need. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's at the cross that God proves finally and totally that he is for you. That if your life is hidden in Christ, if you're a Christian, God proves there at the cross Finally, forever, that he is for you. In fact, he cannot prove that he is any more for you than he already is in Christ there at the cross. He also, at the cross, he is for you. He also shows, without equivocation, that he is against our sin. That our sin is the thing which had to be dealt with. That God is against our sin there at the cross, but He is proving He is for us because He did not, what? Spare His own Son. He was willing to give up, as it were, the most precious entity in the universe, the second person of the Trinity. God displayed His love for us in not sparing the Son. We know that verse. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, what did he do? As a measure of his generosity, God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave his only begotten son. And so, giving of the son, <clears throat> there at the cross, it's a demonstration, finally forever, that God loves us and he is for us. He did not spare his own son. And so the argument runs like this. The argument of verse 32 runs like this. If God did not spare Jesus, who is, as it were, the most precious entity in this universe, he didn't spare Jesus, why are you doubting he will give you your daily bread? Which we're supposed to pray, but I get carried away sometimes when we're praying. But... He will not also with him graciously give us all things. If he has given you Christ, he will provide for every one of your needs. You can think of it this way. Imagine for a moment you come to me and you say, I want to borrow your lawnmower. And I say, okay, yeah, no problem. You borrow my lawnmower and it comes back to me. You say, I'm ready to bring my, your lawnmower back. It comes back to me. And it looks like you were just mowing limestone rocks. The deck is dented. The wheels aren't straight anymore. It's, 
empty of gas, it needs an oil change, it looks like you just kicked in the air cleaner, that's filthy too. The grass catcher has holes in it because you must have been mowing barbed wire. And I say, okay. And I take it back and we clean it up and everything. And then you come back to me and you say, can I borrow your car? <laughs> now, my car might not be a problem, but you say, can I borrow your wife's car? We're going to have a problem, aren't we? Because I loaned you the lesser thing, the thing that isn't as valuable as the car. I loaned that to you, and it came back in horrible shape. Am I going to loan you something of greater value? No. But here's the beauty of the gospel. God does, and it starts with the most precious thing first. He gives us the Son. He gives us the Son first. He did not spare His own Son. This is how great His love is for us and the demonstration that He is for us. He does, if the analogy holds, give us the keys to the most valuable thing. And He's already gone there. And are we responsible drivers? In this illustration, we're not. I hope you are in real life. But he gives us the sun. And if he doesn't withhold the sun from us, he will graciously. He won't just give us all things. He will graciously give us all things. Now, this is good news. This argument from the greater or the argument from the greatest to the lesser, the cross demonstrates God's love for us. This is good news if you're a perfectionist, because if you're a perfectionist, you get out there and you just try to do everything perfect and you think people's love is conditional based on whether or not you're performing well, and then we tend to extrapolate that onto God, or we tend to also fear doing anything because we're paralyzed with fear because it has to be perfect every time. And so we're paralyzed to ever take a risk, to ever have that difficult conversation with someone about the gospel, or have a, a risk relationally where maybe even you graciously confront a person over their sin. We're too scared to do that if we're a perfectionist. And here, what we find out is that God is for us. You don't have to meet perfection as a standard because God is already at the cross through Christ for you. You don't have to earn His love. He is already for you. He's given it to us. So we have the security then that He has already expressed the full measure of His love to us and we can enjoy that security and take a risk for the kingdom. It's also good news not only for perfectionists, but it's good news as well for those who fear vulnerability. Fear vulnerability. I said a bad word, didn't I? Being vulnerable. Sharing the fact that maybe we struggle with an area or James 5.13, probably the least quoted verse in all the Bible, 
confess your sins to one another and what happened? Confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. James 5.13. We're afraid of that, aren't we? Because we're afraid what other people will think of us. But the fact that God is for us emboldens us because we know that the greatest high and sovereign God, the creator of the universe, what does he think of us? He is for us in Christ. And that emboldens us to be vulnerable, to be real with each other, and to have a community of real people that moves towards each other rather than being repelled by our sin and our problems. This is also good news. So it's good news for perfectionists. It's good news for those who don't want to be vulnerable. It's also good news for people pleasers. What do people pleasers do? Oh, they run around, try to make everybody happy. Let me tell you, you got a hard job in 2021. You can't make everybody happy. You know, people pleasers trying to perform up to a certain level so people will like you. And what happens here? God is already for you. You don't have to be accepted or liked by others if you are accepted and loved by God himself. And so it's good news for people pleasers, good news for those who don't want to be vulnerable, and it's good news as well for perfectionists, this fact that God is for us. And it's because God is for us. It's because God is for us. Do you see now, verse 37, we're more than conquerors because he is for us. He is for us. So not only is God for us, but he also justifies us. That's in verse 33. So how do we become more than conquerors? Verse 37, God is for us, And also, he justifies us. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This is a summary statement that the Apostle Paul makes based on the arguments that he sets forward in Romans chapter 3. So, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 is the background for justification Justification, I like to put it this way, Christianity is more than just being forgiven. Justification is the declaration through an act of God, by grace, that we are declared righteous. So Christianity is more than just being forgiven, it's a declaration that we're righteous. That by faith, the righteousness of Christ becomes ours. So when God looks at us, He doesn't see our long record of sin, he sees the righteousness of the Savior. This is justification. And if you look back at Romans chapter 3, how does this happen? We read about our spiritual status in verse 23 of Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How does this happen Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That big theological word there, propitiation, means that at the cross, the wrath of God, which was due to us for sin, was turned away. The wrath due to us fell on Christ. That's And through Christ, propitiation means the satisfaction of God's wrath 
because his wrath is already expended and has been poured out on Christ, we are not subject to it if you're a Christian. That's good news, isn't it? It is God who justifies. And in part, that's why we're more than conquerors. Now, look at verse 33, back to Romans 8 again. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The idea here is there's some legal language in there. And you can kind of imagine, there we are in the celestial courtroom. We're seated at the, at the uh, uh, defense table. Jesus, our lawyer, next to us. Who's the one accusing us? Revelation 12.10, the accuser of the brethren. That's what Satan is called. And you can kind of imagine in this celestial courtroom, there Satan is piling up, piling up the record of our sins, how we have failed in thought, word, action, and attitude to measure up to the perfection and the standard of God. There we are. We don't have a plea. We are guilty as charged. And what happens? What happens? Christ paid the penalty for our sin. We are justified. Therefore, all these accusations go away. We are legally, forensically declared righteous. So there is nothing to charge us with. Nothing to charge us with. Christ has paid it all. We're more than conquerors. More than conquerors. You may say to yourself, hey, you don't know what I did in my past. All of it in Christ forgiven. Past, present, future. God justifies. So we've seen so far, we're more than conquerors. How's that happen? God is for us. He justifies us. And then, verse 34, Christ saves us. Christ saves us. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Now, this reminds us of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, place your faith in Christ, turned your life over to Him, there is no one who can condemn you. Why? Christ saves us. Look at verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And so Christ intercedes for us. Similarly, verse 26, earlier in Romans 8, the Spirit intercedes for us. Christ prays for us. He is at the right hand of God, which is the place and the position of power. Christ ascended there by the merits of having won our salvation for us. He was raised, he died paying the penalty for our sin and was raised in such a way that he displays and has freed us from the power of sin and death. You see why we're more than conquerors. He's freed us from the power of sin and the power of death. If you turn back to Romans chapter 6 verse 11, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. 
Christ has done this through His death and resurrection. He saves us. Now, there might be, with the Son interceding and the Spirit interceding, you may have an improper view of the Trinity that we need to take care of right now. And that would be that you think, deep down, down in your soul, that God the Father is hesitant to forgive you. Do you believe that? That God the Father, He's a little hesitant to forgive you. The Son, oh, He loves us, He intercedes for us. The Spirit indwelling us, working with, but the Father sort of, mm, I don't know about, I don't know about that. That would be the furthest thing from the case. And I bring you to Isaiah uh, chapter 30 to make this point, and I do it intentionally from the Old Testament and intentionally from one of the darker uh, views of the judgment of God uh, there in Isaiah. And I'll read to you verse 18 in a minute, Isaiah 30, 18, to demonstrate to you that the Father is not hesitant to forgive, that the Son's intercession, the Spirit's intercession should not lead you to the conclusion the Father is hesitant to forgive. Instead, you should know that within the Trinity, shrouded in mystery because we have finite minds and God is infinite, there is a relationship, all members of the Trinity cooperating together both for our salvation and our sanctification and eventually our glorification. Isaiah 30, so the Old Testament, first heretic of the church, first recorded heretic was Marcion, A.D. 125. What did he believe? What was so bad? He was declared a heretic. He believed the God of the Old Testament was a God of judgment, and the God of the New Testament was a God of love. Does the church still struggle with this? You may personally struggle with this. Well, look at Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore, He exalts Himself to show you mercy. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. That's Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. We should have an, an understanding that God's disposition towards us. He can't wait to be gracious. He is waiting, he is ready, he is eager to be gracious towards you. And he waits to be gracious to, uh, to you, and he exalts himself. He puts himself in a position to show us what? Mercy. Mercy. God is loving and merciful, and you may think to yourself again, you don't know the half of what I've done. That verse, Isaiah 30, 18, is in the midst, read Isaiah, in the horrors of how Israel sinned and deserved God's wrath, yet he still says, he waits to be gracious to us. All because Christ has saved us there at the cross, God has demonstrated he's against our sin, but Christ is for us. You see now why? We're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors because God is for us. 
God justifies us, declares us righteous, and the Son saves us. And there's one more, one more reason we are more than conquerors, and that's in verses 35 through 39. Nothing, no thing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. In fact, this question is put forward there in verse 35. Who shall separate us? from the love of Christ, and then a list is given of potential things, potential things that could happen to us, that happened to the Apostle Paul, perhaps, that would be candidates for what could separate us from the love of Christ. And the first one mentioned there is tribulation. Tribulation translated suffering, trouble, distress, when distressing things happen in your life, persecution. Last week, talked about the ways we might experience suffering in this world. Persecution being in our country where we're still free. We might be persecuted through ridicule or misunderstanding, or we might be singled out. Famine. Nakedness there, meaning some kind of deprivation or poverty, uh, being uh, in danger or threatened with the sword, threatened by force. None of these things, none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. And so that's the conclusion there in verse 37. No, no, there's an answer that is given to this list. No, those can't separate us. In verse 36, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 44, 22. Psalm 44, 22. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Psalm 44, it's a, one of the Psalms of the sons of Korah. And in that Psalm, it, it is a dark Psalm where the sons of Korah explain, I think, in a very deep, real way that they feel abandoned by God. They feel abandoned. We don't know the exact date or occasion of this psalm, but if you look, Psalm 44 in verse 9, this is what it says, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. So it could be in response to some of the defeats of Israel uh, leading up to the exile. After this verse is quoted, the next verse, verse 23, listen to this cry, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Certainly the writers of that psalm felt a certain way about how God had abandoned them. Have you ever had something so tragic happen in your life? Have you ever had something so hard happen that you thought, where are you, God? Are you, are you asleep? That was Psalm 44, right there recorded for us because God's people you will, at some point in your life, question the presence of God, the love of God, because things are so difficult, hard, or you have encountered potentially this list of things there 
in verse 35. For your sake we're being killed. I'm back in Romans 8 now. And let's look briefly at this verse. Uh, verse 36. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. That's how bad it is. It's not a morning killing. It's not an evening killing. It's all day long. And then this line, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is a total disregard of the lives of those who are being killed, a total disregard of their dignity and their humanity. They're just slaughtered like an animal. What the Apostle Paul is saying is even if that happens in your life, even if it is that bad, could it be worse than that? Being killed all day long, regarded like an animal, the value of your life, like an animal that is slaughtered. And what's his answer to that? The favorite two-letter word of all parents, everywhere, for all time, no. No, not even that. Look at verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What are the, these things? They're all the sufferings that are listed there for us and all the blessings of the fact that God is for us, that he justifies us, that Christ saves us. It's all there. And in the face of all of that, what does he say? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice it's not more than conquerors because I'm a very experienced, skillful Christian more than conquerors, because I know a lot about the Bible. It's more than conquerors through one thing, Him who loved us. It's the triumph of God's love for us that enables us, not our performance, that enables us to be more than a conqueror. And then what does that do in our life? In verses 38 and 39, this passage ends, and listen to the certainty, the surety, the assurance that the Apostle Paul has in his life because he is loved that much. And by the way, in 2 Corinthians verse 11, lest we think, lest we think, oh, the Apostle Paul, come on, you didn't really experience any of this. Uh, you must have watched the YouTube video or somehow talked to somebody who had... No. This is from his real-life experience, 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians precedes Romans chronologically, 2 Corinthians 11. Paul describes biographically what he had been through, beginning in verse 24 of 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. He repeats danger eight times. We need to hear that because so often our life 
is all about how we want it, and our greatest goal and aspiration of life is to be comfortable. That is not a biblical goal. And so that's the context for this more than conquerors. What kind of assurance, what kind of surety did the Apostle Paul have? Go back to Romans 8, 38 now. For I am sure. Here's what he's sure of. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from that experience of his love. Well, wait a second. I mean, this is 2021. Have you seen the political situation and everything? Oh, it says right here, nor rulers. Let that calm our anxiety down. Say, let's save that for 2024, right? Um, we need to save that. Nor rulers, nor... And he can't even, in this list, just the catch-all, nor things present, nor things to come. There's nothing, anything future, nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is that? How does this work out? Because we have a Savior who was separated for us. He already experienced the separation that was due to us for sin. He did it on the cross. Jesus, in anticipation of this separation, the full, receiving the full measure of wrath for us there at the Garden of Gethsemane, sweated blood. He knew it was coming. He knew it would be bad. He experienced that separation there on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken, so we never would be. He was separated, taking on our sin, so we would never be separated. We don't experience any separation because in Christ, he has experienced the separation on our behalf. On our behalf. Nothing can separate us. And so, if nothing can separate us, we are more than conquerors. We have the total victory in Jesus Christ. I showed you how we got there. We started with, God is for us. Not only is He for us, He justifies us. The Son saves us. Nothing can separate us from Christ's love. And so, yes, Christians... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this wonderful good news that indeed you are for us, that you justify us, that the Son rescues us, saving us, and that there is nothing that can separate us from his love. We pray you would help us to live that way. 
Help us to live that way. Help us to live what the Bible says is true about us. And by so doing, would everything we do give you glory so that we might say we live all for Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.